podcast features interviews from women around the world focusing on birth, business, sustainability, health, sex, death, and money. I'm your host, Eleanor Bancroft. In this episode, we talk with Maylai Swan. Maylai comes from Melbourne, Australia. She's been studying Eastern philosophies, meditation, and yoga for over 17 years now. She runs in-depth workshops, retreats, and international teacher trainings all around the world with a specific focus on somatic trauma informed and sound practices. She has a BA in International Development and Environmental Studies and a Master's of Social Work. Some of this interview is a little bit crackly, but the information Melai lays down is so valid and useful, so thank you for bearing with me while... I tackle the world of podcasts and audio sound. Hi, Mayla. Thank you for joining us. And I just wanted to start with maybe talking a little bit about your story. You've been doing meditation for about 20 years now, and just I'd love to know a little bit about how and um, why you came about getting onto this path of, of being a meditation student. Yeah, I... I often think I was born asking why just kind of that inquisitive nature and always fairly existential, even as a child. Um, and, you know, kind of looking back, I realized that I had a series of experiences, uh, you know, in my childhood that, you know, now in hindsight, I can look back and go, ah, they were, you know, so really interesting shifts in consciousness. It kind of also sparked my curiosity and, um, led to me getting really interested in meditation and then later in yoga and those other somatic practices. So for people that don't know, what is a somatic practice? Yeah, great question. Uh, a somatic practice, somatics just means, you know, relating to or of the body. Uh, and I guess that there are some different ways of looking at it on a really fundamental level. It's any practice that works with the body. So it could be yoga, it could be even massage and physiotherapy, you know, they're body-based practices. Um, often the way that we talk about somatics now is that it's really related to the felt sense of being in your body. So not just, you know, moving your body or exercising or manipulating it, but really how it feels to inhabit your own body and work on those subtler levels of embodied experience. In your lived experience with somatic work um, and trainings and also being obviously you're an embodied flow teacher, how has it impacted your life? Yeah, I feel like it's shaped my life in the hugest way. Um, when I was a when I was a child, I was not embodied at all. I was a geek little kid. I loved books. I loved playing the violin. I hated sports or really anything physical. Um, and it wasn't you know sort of in my later teens I discovered Tai Chi. I discovered meditation, and that led me to yoga. Uh, and partly through this process of, of recognizing that I needed to get out of my head and ground in my body. And it's really been such a, a healing practice, I suppose, in a way for me. And it's profoundly changed the way that I feel in my own body and the way that I relate in the world. Um, yeah, for me, it actually feels like Everything kind of gives me that capacity to stay present and grounded no matter what might be happening, you know, having that capacity to feel life and then have that space to choose and respond. I feel like we live in such an intellectualised society where people often um, make decisions from their mind, you know, and how they can rationalise things in a thought, in a thought process. Yeah, is it, is it more in the way of speaking more to that that kind of, in, I guess, embodied truth that our, our bodies do know things that our minds don't? Absolutely. And you're so right. We really are, you know, we're in a society that privileges the mind and privileges the intellect. But I think we see so much how much suffering comes about from being stuck in the mind. 
and the body is really a, a pathway and a doorway into the present moment and it's often in the present moment where we can experience life in a more open way and a more accepting way and not get stuck in the stories, for example, but just be present to what is. So for me, it's really the body that's that doorway. Definitely. And I also feel like for women, especially, um, you know, that it's really important that we tune into the spaces of our body and listen deeply to our intuition because there is so much chaos out there in the world of the way that we're supposed to be and striving to certain perfections and I think the reality is like everybody is different and not just meaning mind or you know cultural experiences or races but actually bodies are different so we all can we can't be just put under one big umbrella Exactly. And I think historically too, you know, women have been owned and mistreated and subjugated and oppressed and abused. And I think what we're seeing now, you know, there's that such a huge interest and movement for women to really reclaim their own bodies in, you know, not just in body image, but the way that we inhabit our bodies, our sexuality, our sensuality, um, that's profoundly healing. Definitely. And I also feel like it's an interesting space with yoga because um, from my knowing, traditionally, it, it was meant as a practice for men. It definitely emerged as a practice yeah, by mostly by men. There, there have been female practitioners, um, you know, throughout history, but I think often we don't hear about them and or they haven't contributed much to the literature that exists and that's, you know, slowly starting to change. I mean, of course, now it's radically changed. You know, yoga in the West is 90% women um, and I think it's also by by trial and error in a way that we've been discovering what works and what doesn't work in women's bodies you know thinking about the many women who started practicing yoga early on and announcing the impacts in their own bodies of practicing in ways that are very driven and very demanding or suited to male bodies for example mm, yeah and i'd love to just speak to that space because I'm, I've been also practicing yoga for a while and often it's, it is that, you know, 95% of the room are women. Um, most of my teachers are women. And I often think like, where are, where are the men in these spaces? And I wonder if you have an opinion or could talk to why you think Australian society or culture isn't, um, yoga isn't so appealing for, for the men in our society. Yeah, I think some of that is probably cultural as well, or also, you know, I think really what we've seen over the last decades is women really interested in personal development and emotional development and spiritual practices. Not to say that men aren't, because they definitely are, but somehow it's kind of emerged as this practice that women are really diving into and finding benefit from and partly what I suspect is as that movement has happened men don't feel so comfortable in those spaces and I've spoken to some men who even say you know it's so confronting to be in a yoga studio where perhaps they feel that they're not very flexible and they're brand new to yoga and then they're in this room full of you know women in hot pants and crop tops and, and that that's actually quite a confronting space for them as well. Um, and, you know, and then on the other side of it, there's this perception that, you know, men engage more in going to the gym or in playing team sports. Um, that said, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think when, when men do get really engaged in yoga, they often step into teaching roles quite readily too, because I think there are, you know, people who would like to see more male teachers, for example. Definitely. I mean, one thing that's coming up for me is like um, there are so many women's only activities, but 
more spaces for men, I think, in personal development work that is men's only run. Because I think I am only coming from the experience of being, you know, embodied as a woman and, and identifying in that space. But um, I guess that I forget that also women can be intimidating for men the way that a group of men could be intimidating for women. Yeah, exactly. And I've actually been speaking recently to some people who are running women's work and others who are running men's work. And what I'm hearing emerge more and more is kind of reflecting on the value of having those individual group spaces to tap into and do that work in a way that feels safe. But the real piece uh, and the real value is in coming together. And that's, I think, what is starting to emerge a little bit more, which for me is really exciting too. And, and you know, then also to find ways of including people who don't identify, you know, strictly as, you know, like cisgendered women or cisgendered men, like how are we also creating those spaces and furthering those conversations to include the whole array, array of you know, gender identities. This is a big um, like part of your work, being a bridge, I guess, you know, being a um, somebody that's thinking about society and how everybody can be inclusive. And I just want to talk to um, not, uh, not just about your yoga and meditation, but also your studies. You have a BA in international development and a master's in social work. Um, how, how did you develop these, these skills and like why did you feel drawn to be in this line of work? Yeah, ironically, when I finished high school, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. So I actually started a degree in maths and physics. And in my arts degree, I was studying philosophy and linguistics. So you can see how much in my head I was. Um, and at the, I studied a subject in Buddhist philosophy in my first year of uni. And I think that really changed a lot for me because I finally felt this sense of coming home. And at the end of that year, I went backpacking for three months through Thailand and Laos. And I did my first 10-day meditation retreat and also really had my eyes opened to, it was the first time I was in a you know, developing country and seeing the contrast and the poverty and the privilege and reflecting on my own place in that and I remember one conversation in particular I was on the bus in Laos traveling down to the border to go back into Thailand and I was sitting next to this young policeman and he was from the north east of Laos and from a very poor village <clears throat> excuse me where they had a lot of unexploded ordnance you know it was kind of um, was one of those areas that had been really affected by the wars. And he, he was probably about my age or a little older than me. I was only 18 at the time and in broken tie had a conversation with him and he was a policeman at the border. And I asked him if he had ever, you know, if he'd been to Thailand and he said, no, I said, well, why not? You're working right on the border. He said, I can't afford the visa to go across. Mm. And that really, like that conversation and that realisation so profoundly changed my view of myself and my privilege and how, how much we're impacted just by where we're born and the circumstances that we're born into and that actually we can't take anything for granted. Um, and it wasn't at the end of that trip that I went back, you know, came back to Melbourne and changed my degree quite radically and ended up studying development studies and environmental studies. Amazing. And, and you've worked in Indigenous communities in Australia also? Yeah, I, I, spent six six years working in central australia i lived out in alice springs for three years and was so fortunate to i did a lot of youth work and community arts work and community development work and then even after i moved back to melbourne i was traveling back and forth working across quite a lot of different communities up there when you were in um when you're in the Indigenous communities, were you incorporating yoga into those spaces at that time? 
No, I wasn't actually. I was doing my, that was very much my own practice over that period of time. And I was primarily running um, youth music programs. So we did a lot of songwriting uh, and spent a lot of time, you know, outdoors as well, kind of engaging out in nature and going camping and going on picnics and that sort of stuff. But it wasn't specifically embodied practice, even though for me there is crossover. Yeah, absolutely. But that's what you're doing now. I mean, the um, Yoga for Humankind. Um, you, would you talk a little bit about that organisation and when it started and um, what you're doing in the world with it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Yoga for Humankind is a social enterprise yoga teacher training school. And the way that it emerged, like for me, it's really this intersection between the things that I really love and am passionate about being yoga, meditation, healing, somatic practices, and all of my community and social work and the social justice piece. And it kind of emerged because I was participating in a lot of yoga trainings and teaching on a lot of other people's yoga trainings. And on the one hand, I could see that for so many of the people who were turning up in those spaces and training to be teachers, there's a lot of trauma that is carried in the space, you know, in human experience in general. And when we tap into our bodies, that's often what we tap into. And there wasn't space or acknowledgement or skill for really how to recognize that and work with it effectively. Uh, and on the other hand, I also heard a lot of people saying that they were coming to do the yoga teacher training uh, so that they could share it with their friends, with their family, with people that they worked with um, or in community spaces, not necessarily wanting to be a studio-based yoga teacher. And that really made an impact on me to recognize that there was really the need for this work and these trainings that are, you know, trauma informed yoga teacher trainings that really support people with the range of skills and approaches to be able to step into those different community spaces and working with people from different backgrounds. Mm. So what are the differences between being, in um, your opinion, a, a studio-based teacher and a trauma-informed yoga teacher? I would love to see a world where there's no distinction, <laughs> ultimately. Um, you know, as I was saying, like, we know now that trauma is a part of human experience. I mean, some of the studies that are out there, like from the World Health Organization, that have extrapolated kind of globally, recognize that at least 70% of people have experienced at least one traumatic event in their lives personally. And then of course we would all know people who have experienced at least one or more. So it touches each one of us. Uh, and I mean, trauma informed practice is just starting this groundswell, not just in yoga, but also in the other health and community professions, but it's really about recognizing that trauma is prevalent and particularly when we tap into our bodies not only may we re-experience those traumatic events but we also have the capacity to work with them and integrate them as well so I mean I think what we've seen for so long is in studio based yoga it, there just hasn't been an understanding or a recognition of trauma and the impacts of trauma and how that might show up. And it's you know, not of anyone's fault. This is emerging knowledge and an emerging field. But I think more and more people are starting to see what the impacts of trauma are and that there are really are skills and approaches that you can learn and work with to be able to recognize those impacts of trauma and to support people and to help make those practices both safer no, no such thing as 100 percent safe but safer practices so that we're not re-traumatizing people but also adapting the practices in ways that then can become more therapeutic in a sense and we dive a little bit deeper with the skills and approaches that a trauma teacher may um you know assist in, in a class 
Yeah, so some of those, for example, are really recognizing that often the impacts of trauma um, are relational. So particularly when we're looking at complex trauma or relationship trauma that happens in relationship between people, um, <clears throat> that there are often power dynamics that occur in those traumatic relational experiences. So one of the things that we want to ensure in our yoga facilitation is that we're not replicating or perpetuating those power imbalances. And one of the things that we can do is really try to support people to explore and develop their own sense of agency and choice in their own bodies, which then translates up into their everyday lives. And one of the main ways we do that is by creating more invitation and more choice rather than just telling people what to do and what they should and shouldn't be doing in their bodies and what that should or shouldn't feel like. Definitely. I've had the direct experience of trying to bring yoga to um, my family and I'm sure a lot of um, other yogis or yoga teachers can relate to this idea of feeling so amazing after being in the practice and just wanting to share that but not having the right tools you know and for me at that stage in my life I was in my early 20s and it was to go to my you know younger sister and my mother and be like this is it like this is the answer like get down on this mat and do this you know and I'm recognizing that that can be really confronting for people if they don't feel they have that choice um if they feel that there is a sense of pressure on them to be obligated to do this um, practice or so forth and it wasn't until I took a big big breath and spent a lot of time away from my family and with my own self that I actually decided to stop kind of you know pressuring them in that space and eventually they both came to me because what I started to realize in my later 20s and leading into my 30s is that you know People find it quite aggressive when you just tell them what to do. But if you actively are just actioning what you do, and that could spark an interest in them if they see change within you. And that's why I really love the training that you provide, the trauma-informed training, because it really highlights this. It really highlights the idea of being uh, embodied in your truth um, and that being a practice that you live by but don't, talk or speak by if that makes sense yeah absolutely it really is you know it comes back to this thing of being a living embodied example or a role model of the work and of the change that we're hoping to create in ourselves and have that be a possibility for others and I, I love that example that you give too about you know sharing it with your family because it's also the thing it's not without good intentions it's not without, you know, wanting to help other people or support other people, but recognizing that, you know, the way often that we're told to do that, and sometimes even out of our own enthusiasm and ignorance, that we're just like, you know, oh, this really is so great. You need this. I'm going to show you how to do it. And this is how you should do it. And it's what's going to work for you. Um, <clears throat> which, like I said, that's not without good intentions, but recognizing how that can also just replicate those experiences of not having agency, of constantly being told what to do and what is right for you. And they're the things that we're trying to unpack and dismantle through doing this work. Yeah, the agency point is amazing. And I'd love for you to talk about how the trauma-informed yoga really gives that back to people. Yeah, and this is one of the ways it's kind of obvious and subtle at the same time. Um, so part of it is it's in the power dynamic between the facilitator and the participant. And we even consciously use those words rather than saying teacher and student, because even saying teacher and student implies that you know one person is an expert and has the knowledge and tells the other person what to do and that they just have to follow and learn but actually what we're seeing is each person has within themselves the what the full capacity of what they need and as a facilitator we offer them the guidance and the opportunity 
Um, so even there, there's quite a big shift of just changing those attitudes and power dynamics and inviting people in as experts in their own lives, as the, you know, the agents of their own bodies and their own experience as much as possible. And, and then that happens also specifically through, you know, rather than just telling somebody, step your right foot back, step your left foot back, plank, lower down chaturanga, come through, you know, like these kind of ways that yoga is really generally guided in a class, that there's invitation of how to embody the shapes and forms, whether someone might even want to do that, giving different choices and options of, you know, step back, maybe lower your knees to the floor or hold in plank. If it feels right in your body today, you might lower down to chaturanga or you might take yourself all the way down to the floor. And they're things that sound really simple, but what they do is create an opportunity for someone to actually tap into their own experience in that moment and ask, yeah, what does feel right for me right now? What is happening in my body right now? And there's the bridge and the connection into their own bodies and their own embodied experience and out of the mind or out of an external power of somebody else just telling you what to do and you blindly have to follow. And it's such a beautiful translation also into a really conscious way to live, I believe, you know, actually inviting people to join you rather than telling them to join you. And there's this reoccurring um, message that keeps coming through that I, I got um, a lot when I met you was that, you know, a leader stands aside the people not in front of a true leader and a good leader, because I really think we have had power dynamics happening in our society for such a long period of time, you know, probably since colonization. Um, and I really think that's played an effect on, on the continual trauma of people. And when we learn to stand aside each other, and perhaps there's one person that does have more, um, I don't know, is more outward or, or capable of, of moving in a certain direction, but is inviting people to move in that direction with them. It becomes a much better way to be a leader than to, you know, uh, dictatorship or this space where we have been told actually a good leader is somebody that, you know, just stands out the front and runs in front of everybody. Exactly. And to recognize too, how as human beings, how much of our lives, really all of our lives, are about relationships and the quality of relationships and that trust happens through that genuine connection and through that relationship. So changing those power dynamics and inviting someone into a conversation, inviting them into the relationship and partnership is, is really honouring, you know, both of that individual person but also this fundamental nature of being human which is about relationship as well mm. and like the, the podcast is it takes courage to tell the truth and so much of what i want to see is the women i'm interviewing taking over the education system because i just <laughs> I love it <laughs> i feel like wow trauma-informed yoga like wouldn't it be an incredible class to have it at a high school or even at primary school to educate us on how to be proper citizens of the world and I guess in saying that I um, asked the question of what what truths have you found through your experience and your journey um, in this in through yoga and meditation that you wish that you had learnt from a younger age yeah wow I, I mean for me one of the biggest insight and insight isn't even right but you know we use this word embodied truth which i really love because that's what it feels like for me is this wisdom that we we get from the practices of yoga and meditation and the philosophies which is this fundamental recognition that we are so deeply fundamentally connected um, I don't really like to use the word, you know, that we are one because that kind of denies the diversity of our, and individuality of our experience, but recognizing actually that we're from the same source and 
we're just different manifestations of that same source. For me, that was actually an experience and an insight I had on that first meditation retreat I mentioned when I was 18 in Thailand. And it was so profound, it changed everything. Um, because what I recognized was that I could be any other human being or living being or non-living being in this world, like in the manifestation of this world, I could be any of that. And really on that fundamental level, I am also that. And for me, what that really awakens is this deep sense of compassion and this deep sense of acceptance and, and welcoming, you know, it's just when, you know, when I meet people or see people, especially, you know, if they, if they're suffering in the world or perhaps they're behaving in ways that we might find challenging, it really is a, a way to pause and to reflect and recognize it's like, well, actually that could be me. And if that was me, then how would I like the world to show up for me in that in that situation? Yeah, definitely. And recognizing also that people have a, an infinity of a story that we don't know in the first instances of meeting them. And it, I used to say this back, you know, thing when I was living in the city always because I would you know, biggest, my biggest confrontation I found was with myself in the city, meeting people that I felt were, um, you know, and at that stage I was judging them in that place. They're very close and no one smiles at me and blah, blah, blah. But actually recognizing as I've stepped away from the city, well, that's their environment that they live in and they're, they're getting something done each day and maybe they don't have time to smile at me. And, you know, I'm living up in Byron Bay where it's paradise and I'm incredibly privileged and I'm walking around with a big smile on my face, but people have a different story and so to not meet people with this idea of oh well you should act and be just as I am because we're all humans and one thing I hear a lot in the spiritual community as well and the yoga community is this idea of like um, positivity you know like oh let's just be light and everyone should be positive and I find that quite triggering actually because I think in some ways that's that's really suppressing our emotional body. And in some ways it's actually continuing this patriarchal idea that the feminine for me, which is the emotional body should stay um, underneath. It should not rise. And when we're saying that to people be positive or what, you know, just, you should be so happy all the time. It's well, why? Because actually that's been, we've been told that pre yoga, even coming to Australia, that we shouldn't have a society where our emotions, you know, can be seen. And I think that is a huge catalyst to a lot of trauma and specifically trauma with the masculine in this country. Yeah, it's such a good point. And, you know, when we're talking about embodied truth, that we have to, you know, when we look at life in the bigger picture as well, we see that life is not all just light. It's not all expansion. It really is. A it is beautifully the full complexity and the full array of all of the experiences. And we have the capacity to experience all of those things. And of course, we want to feel good. Of course, we want to feel positive. But you're so right. You know, when we just focus on you know, this feeling of I should feel happy, I have to feel positive and happy all of the time, we're actually suppressing the movement of life. We're suppressing all of our other experiences and emotions. And when we suppress them, they don't actually go away. They just get stored and hidden in our bodies. And that's often where we get that further disconnect between the mind and the body, this kind of false pressure of the mind that life has to be a certain way and we have to be thinking and feeling things in a certain way it's quite interesting because you know in the yoga world people are telling people be positive but then that's making them store their emotions more and probably leading to more trauma um can you talk to the idea or this saying um issues in your tissues yeah it's a good one isn't it <laughs> i love it there's all these kind of little well, some of the others like i guess they're memes aren't they um like to tame it name it to tame it you have to feel it to heal it you know issues in your tissues which i remember years ago i used to think i was like oh, are they just they're just made up but then i started to realize no actually there's so much truth in them 
And it really is that, you know, when we think about what's happening um, physiologically in our bodies, when we're having thoughts and when we're having emotions, is there's a whole array of biochemical reactions that are happening at the same time. And when we are suppressing our emotions and not allowing ourselves to feel, often there is this buildup of, of biochemicals in our bodies that do sit literally in the tissues and change the way that the receptors on our cells work, for example, and the types of uh, hormones and peptides that are being produced and released. And our body learns these patterns and different ways of being. So they get stored in the tissues in those ways. And often when we find, when we create space for yoga and meditation and allowing ourselves to feel often what we can experience is kind of this rush of sensation which can sometimes be really overwhelming you know we tap into a particular area of the body and a flood of emotion may come for example that's a really common experience i hear about a lot you know in yoga practice for example um and often it, it is you know this this tapping into and this release of of what is being held in our tissues, what's being held in the different parts of our bodies. And one of the tools and one of the approaches of trauma-informed yoga is also finding ways where we can tap into that in a way that's safe enough and slow enough so that it isn't overwhelming and re-traumatizing for how you know, little bit by little bit we can regain our capacity to feel and allow the energies of our emotions to move and not be you know, stuck in our systems anymore. And in that way, it's not that we stop feeling those things, but we stop being trapped and held hostage by them. And I recently did your 60-hour trauma-informed yoga, so I'm talking from experience um, as you being a teacher in this space, and it's it's amazing for me to talk from my lived experience in this because um after the training I, I i got really sick and one of the big things that you really emphasize during the training is that as yoga informed teachers that we must do the work before we can go out and um, teach the work or assist in um, providing the work to people, which I think is really powerful for anybody that's learning anything is that they really embody that practice beforehand. But it was really strong for me because, you know, in the space of the training, you're doing your own work while ingesting a lot of information and, and often like, you know, it takes a lot of integration post those kinds of trainings to allow everything to surface. For me, I feel like I am a very healthy person, right? You know, I say that in terms of I have a good lifestyle, I eat well, I move my body, but recognizing that um, there was dis-ease within me or disease, or there was something that needed to move through me that I wasn't even aware of until I did that training. And that sometimes we have um, parts of ourselves that we're not even aware have uh, been trapped in our body until we do gently approach this space you know with loving kindness and um I, yeah i just really wanted to talk to that and speak that it it's such a powerful training and that i i just recommend it to everybody whether you're a yoga teacher or not just to understand how to implement these tools to to be gentle with yourself you know we live in this very fascinating society where success is put as um the point where everybody must get to, you know, it's like everybody has to succeed and not just day to day, but in your life. And we always have to set our goals and, you know, how does self care play a part in trauma informed yoga and how does self care impact your own life? Ah, oh, so great. I love the way that you, you know, you kind of put it as well and phrase it and summarize it and bring that back to self care and this practice of kindness and for me it really comes back to this fundamental experience of being human and accepting and embracing what that means and and what life is and in that sense you know self-care it is this practice of self-compassion 
it is an understanding of the nature of life and the nature of human being and seeing that it is cyclical. It has its ups and downs. That's the nature of life. And that when we are constantly trying to push ourselves and succeed or be productive or feel positive and happy all the time, it's really just like pushing the pendulum to one side. And often then what happens is there's the, you know, the fallout from that as the energy builds so much, you know, it, it has to swing back because of the cyclical nature of life. And that's often when we can get into these you know, unhealthy patterns. Um, and so in that sense, I really see self-care as understanding and appreciating those natural cycles and allowing space for them, which looks like, you know, a practice of kindness and a practice of tenderness and allowing so that when the quiet moments come or when the hardship comes or the suffering comes, that you're even holding space for that within yourself uh, as those experiences of life move through us, knowing too that at some point that will change and you'll have those positive experiences again. It's kind of that, like that old spiritual wisdom of not grasping or holding on to any experience because it will actually change in the next moment. Um, so that's part of it. And really the other part of it is this wisdom of, of really coming to know who you are, of being self-aware, of knowing what the patterns are that were cultivated through your life to this point and finding skillful ways of working with those. And for me, this is where the practices of yoga and mindfulness and meditation and philosophy are really helpful because they give you those skills and tools. Obviously, you have to practice them. Um, but that's what gives you the, the tools to kind of sit in that wisdom and to be able to hold space for you in wisdom. And as you, know, as you mentioned, that is then the work that enables you to really hold space for another person and help create those spaces for them to also sit in those practices of self-recognition and self-tenderness. Definitely. I feel like there's a lot of correlations between um, like the positive light aspect of, of that attitude and also the like, you know, successful oriented space. It's all very um, like yang, you know, in a way it's all very in the, in the more masculine space. And I say those terminologies as in energies, not as in, um, you know, embodying like a, a masculine man or a masculine wo woman, because I strongly believe yeah. that we hold both feminine and masculine energies within us, but our societies are so masculine driven and our women are also, you know, very masculine driven because that's kind of what we've been taught. Um, I guess in your opinion, what are some, what do you think are some good practices that that people can do to really bring themselves back to a more feminine energy or a current that can run through them that could then ripple out into their communities? Yeah, I I think for this, like a lot of it is is personal. A lot of it's finding the things that work for you. Um, so for many people, you know, who are discovering the practices of yoga or the practices of mindfulness and meditation, people are finding those really useful. Um, you know, I work in the space of trauma-informed yoga and more somatic-based yoga. So it's, it's really yoga that's not just about fitness and form and body image, for example, but really those practices that support you to slow down and to really notice what's happening internally and that invites in attitudes of welcoming and, and being with what is already there in your own internal experience rather than trying to achieve anything. Uh, and, you know, I find some movement practices are really helpful. Other people love meditation practices that are more in stillness and find those really supportive. And then, I mean, for me personally, time out in nature is such a big one that I just allow myself the time just to go out into the forest or sit by a waterfall or a creek and hear the sounds and smell the smells and 
feel supported by that relationship with life and nature. Um, other people dance and um, do all different kinds of, of practices that I think are just practices about being in the present moment and connecting you know, inwardly with your own experience and through the doorways of the senses, as well as, you know, outwardly in those ways that are a bit more attentive, I guess. Yeah, I think we have a lot to learn from nature and moving more into this like technology world or technological based world, you know, often I think people feel it's unproductive or something to just go and sit you know at the beach for a few hours or just go and like sit on the grass without any kind of device but I totally agree with you I think when I discovered my own relationship with with nature was really when I started to find a balanced place within myself where I could slow down and realize that doing wasn't everything that I didn't need to always be doing something that actually just sitting and observing I learned so much about life you know just looking at trees and the way that wind moves and the way that water operates and just even being amongst nature and for me I, I find it fascinating when people are like oh I need to go to nature it's just silent and you know quiet and for me it's loud it's like roaring it's like screaming at me like when you actually go to the belly of a national park or something you you hear all of the animals and the life that lives within that space and it can be really calming I think for the nervous system or from my experience my nervous system just drops like when I'm like sitting on the earth and I'm listening to the buzzing of nature around me I'm like oh yeah okay this is this is what I needed right now yeah and it's so simple too you know it's just so simple and that you can just engage with it however it invites you to engage with it in the moment I love that about it yeah me too I love that you don't have to consume anything to be in nature as well. It's definitely where I'm moving forward in my life is trying to consume less and be more. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, a, I'm such a big fan of simplicity. And, you know, even though from the outside, I live a very complex life. Um, but even recognizing that the simplest things are often the most powerful. You know, as you were saying, you can learn so much. I've learned so much just by observing nature, just sitting in it, observing, recognizing, oh yeah, this is just the way of things. How does that translate into my life? There's so much wisdom that comes through that simplicity. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And it's, I feel like it's actually my, my number one message that I try to, to, I guess, like live by is in my space and, and share with people when they ask me what, what I do to you know have a life that I have it's like well it's I don't spend a lot of money and I spend a lot of time in nature so that's how I can have the life that I have <laughs> exactly but it's you know for people who are stuck in the you know, what do you call it the hamster wheel I like that expression um or the rat race that there's so much internalized social expectation and social pressure around consuming and having and doing and you know that the people often don't even recognize that there's any alternative and to see that you can have the most incredibly rich and fulfilling life and do all of those things that are really nourishing and inspiring for you without having to spend a lot of money definitely and I think it comes back to that place of sitting with yourself, which we were, which we've been talking about, and really listening to like what you need, rather than, you know, we're living in such a saturated, especially with social media, but just saturated information about people telling us what we need. And I think, yeah, that that coming back to self, and why I really love the trauma-informed yoga is because it does that. It really allows you to sit with yourself and ask yourself. What do I need? And in every moment, you know, and if we can do that on the mat, then we can move that off into our life and, and really check in with ourselves. Like, oh, do I need 
that right now? Is that something that I really need and I'm calling to? And, and, and again, back to what you were talking at the start of the podcast about, you know, listening to your body as well, rather than just listening and letting the mind dictate where the life goes. Yeah, exactly. And just as you were saying that too, I was reflecting on how, like even our access to these practices, even our ability to do the work is a privilege. And that's one of the things that I'm so passionate about is, you know, not forcing people into doing practices, but creating the opportunities where this kind of knowledge and these kind of practices are more available to people more broadly, not just those of us who have the money to go to a yoga studio or have friends who are already engaged and can teach us and show us and discuss and debate things. You know, but, but making these practices and this knowledge more widely accessible and realizing it's actually a privilege to be able to do your own work so much of the time. And you're really doing that in the real world. You're about to go to Jordan and I'm sure you've done lots of other community-based um, yoga courses. Will you talk a little bit about those projects? Yeah. So, I mean, that is one of my really big passions and I, I still feel like it's such an experiment at the moment, um, you know, ways that we can make yoga practices, for example, more accessible. So some of the ways that I've been doing that is, you know, when I was living in Melbourne now some years ago, I was um, teaching various different community programs, often in partnership with local community organisations um, like Foundation House in Melbourne that is a counselling service for people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds, parents and mental health programs at CoHealth Community Health Centre different things like that. So there are spaces that we can step into and ways that we can offer things in partnership with community organizations to make practices more accessible. And of course, Joe Buick, who teaches um, with me in Yoga for Humankind, now runs State of Being in Melbourne. Um, they're changing their name to Collective Being, which I think is really exciting too, recognizing that importance and power of, of the collective in the work. Um, so that's one of the ways. And then for me, I've, you know, I've always been a traveler and always felt really called to, to work overseas and to work with people or you know, overseas in Australia, AKA in you know, Aboriginal communities as well, that often feel like they're just as remote. Um, and for me, that's just a personal calling that I feel really drawn to do that work cross-culturally. And so part of that then is collaborating with different programs and organizations and different locations overseas. So you mentioned the one in Jordan. I've been partnering with an organization there called Center for Victims of Torture and providing training for their clinical team. They've got a team of physiotherapists and a team of counselors who provide group work, uh, trauma therapy for people from refugee backgrounds living in Jordan. So, and, and that kind of work, I'm really pa passionate about sharing really this train the trainer model so it's not reliant on someone like me, a foreigner, to go in um, and run the programs, but actually building the capacity of the people already on the ground and doing the work so that they can keep that alive and foster that within their own communities. I love that. And, then, and that's, again, you know, you're, you're inspiring people to know that they can take control of their own lives and have agency in their community or in their body. And yeah, the work you're doing is so amazing. I'm so thankful that you exist and that you're out there. <laughs> Thank you. And I, you know, the other thing, like when I say, like for, for me, it's such an experiment. I'm constantly trying to think of new ways to foster the work and to open the conversations. Um, and I would actually love to hear from, you know, other people. Like one of the things that I'm doing in these coming weeks in Melbourne is hosting some conversations, events called Conversations in Yoga, Social Justice and Embodied Social Change to really start those conversations at the community level. And they're free events just to start those conversations because I just don't I don't have all of the answers as much as I'd love to have them but that's where I see we generate those solutions by coming together and having the conversations and doing the work together and for me it's really interesting because I can 
create an event, but what I see is that the people who come and the people who get in early and have the access are the, often the ones who are already engaged in this kind of work and have the resources and information access to even know that these kind of events are happening. So that's what I said, you know, for the next one, I was like, okay, well, how do we go about making it more accessible to a more diverse range of people and even sparking interest in people who may never have thought about this before or don't think that it's necessarily important or relevant to them. So, and I don't have the answer, so I'm putting it out there to say, you know, I'd love um, other conversation and input about this and how we can create those spaces and opportunities together to really create social, you know, social change, that it's not just happening on the level of, you know, the ones like us who are already privileged. Yeah, definitely. And I think like inclusion is the most important part of change. And, you know, it's interesting because one thing that um, you highlighted for me at the training was that was it 17% of um, people in Australia practice yoga. Yeah. For me, that was, you know, my world being, I practice a lot. I live in Byron, you know, it seems like every second person is a yoga teacher. I run in these groups where everybody's really involved in the body. But what I need to recognize constantly is coming back to the bigger picture, which is that just because I run in these currents doesn't mean everyone's running in them. And really, yeah, inspiring that you're moving forward in that way to try and, um, you know, invite more people from a, a broad range of cultures and races and sexes and, you know, um, backgrounds to come together because we need all those perspectives. For so long, it's only been one or two perspectives running this and in order for us to move we have to we have to do it as a collective exactly and that's actually one of the reasons why i love running these trainings i'm so excited about them we have our 200 hour foundational yoga teacher training starting in melbourne next month and you know kind of in a way what surprised me but absolutely delights me is that the people who are drawn to participating in our trainings, they come from a really diverse range of lived experiences and interests and backgrounds themselves. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard from some people is that they've been wanting to do a yoga teacher training, but they haven't felt like the ones that are on offer are right for them or that they would feel accepted or included or safe in those trainings. So, recognizing you know, that the yoga teaching world is so self-selecting in that sense um, and so it's so exciting to open a space and offer a training where people feel that it includes them and that that's available to them and what's so exciting for me about that is that then we have a really diverse range of experiences and knowledge and skills in the room that we can all learn from each other and further that conversation together. Yeah, and we really had that in our training. I felt like there was a really beautiful, even mix of people who were um, yoga teachers and in that studio space, but then also we had people who um, were social workers, um, therapists, you know, and it, it's amazing because you're right, it just brings such a different, diverse conversation around how we can all look at these things from the different lenses of each other, not just putting a yogic lens on it. Like let's, let's put a justice and a social worker and a therapist and a yoga teacher and put them all in a group and ask them, you know, a certain question, which is the next question I'm going to ask you actually is what is your idea of the most perfect world? <laughs> oh, I have no idea about that one. Um, in fact, in some ways, I just, I don't believe in a perfect world or that it's already perfect. This is where for me, you know, sort of the, the yoga philosophy or the spiritual practice that I've done in looking at, you know, like what is consciousness and what is life and what is the world? That's my ground. Um, because I don't think there's such a thing as a perfect world in the sense of there being, you know, peace or harmony or just 
um, you know, healthy relationships, for example, I just, I see life as just so complex, but where I see, where I see the opportunity, I suppose, is really on each of us who's drawn to doing this work or, you know, your personal work or your spiritual work or your social work that we dive into our own selves and, and see, you know, like what is the nature of this life and what is my part in it and how can I find my own sense and, and coming home in my own body and my own experience. And what I've seen, you know, I mean, it's the Gandhi quote, become the change you wish to see in the world. There's such a truth in that. And all I think that we can do is, is for each of us to do that individually in our own lives, you know, the small spheres of our own lives and that that will ripple out into the world in whatever way it's meant to. So I don't think I answered your question. <laughs> but, uh, I was just checking if it was a, you know, if it was a joke question or not, you know, if it could be answered or not. I'm like, yep, you're the teacher. If you're going to know it, then I'm going to check and see if you, you've got it. your answer. And that answer may have actually answered my last question, but um, I'm going to ask you anyway, because it may spark a different, a different thought process. But um what is the biggest truth that, you, that you've learned in this human experience? Oh, the biggest truth. I think I can, I can answer that in two ways. One is that there's, there's no one truth in the sense, you know, from this experience of being human and all of the ways that we think about things and judge ourselves and judge others and cling to beliefs and dogmas and religions and political beliefs, for example, that there's not one truth. And the real freedom comes through recognizing that there's not one truth and not being attached to things needing to be a certain way that's on the relative sense of being human anyway. But then in the bigger picture, what I know is that, you know, this ultimate truth is that fundamental ground of existence that we, you know, maybe we call it consciousness. That is this source of the universe. It's the source of life. It's the source, the same source, you know, it's like that, ignites me that's the same source that ignites you so there is you know for me knowing there's that fundamental ground of being that's the same for everything um it just for me that's the that's that recognition of connection and likeness and is the source of peace and compassion for me so there's the truth and there's the not one truth. Beautiful. Um, Melai, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I feel like I would like to do another episode with you because I didn't even get to touch on um, the birth of humankind. And I am a huge advocate for um, birth in general and birthright and women taking back that space and I'd love to have another conversation with you about that but um for now would you be able to let people know perhaps when the next trainings are and how they can stay connected with you yeah for sure so we have we have our 200 hour training starting um just in a couple of weeks actually on the 3rd of october in melbourne that runs as four six day modules between october and april next year <clears throat> and then our next 200 hour training is a month-long immersion in bali next july and then we're also offering the 60 hour trainings for existing yoga teachers and community and health professionals uh, the next ones are in late January next year, 2020, and in New Zealand in April and in Bali in August. Um, I, can, I can spell out the website if that's helpful because all the information's up there. It's www.yogaforhumankind.org. Um, 
so that's that's the details and i'm also really happy you know people want to reach out and find out some more information directly and have a conversation or um you know share your ideas and, and input as i said i would also love that thank you so much it's been a privilege to talk to you and i feel grateful that you gave up your time to share some of your wisdom with us thank you so much and ella thank you so much for all of the incredible work that you're doing in the world and you know creating opportunities like this podcast so that we can all you know, really find our own embodied truths and, and share that into the world. I really think that's where the work is. <laughs>